0: Hey everybody, this is David Gogo from Nanaimo, British Columbia. Oh yeah, so nice there. And you were listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: Back in, I think, the year 2000, it might have been 2001, but I think it was 2000, um, I decided that I wanted to interview some blues musicians, and I went to the Toronto Harbourfront Blues Festival, and I arranged for four people to interview, and those were the first four musicians I would ever interviewed. And interviewing number two after John Jackson was you. Right. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. Um, and I just remember we had some equipment problem, and so we had to go back to my friend's studio, and you were kind enough. You were so patient. And I always, I always appreciated that. And this is, based on the four interviews that I did, I decided that I would pursue documenting the blues. And right. you were part of that reason. So I, I have a lot to thank you for. And it's been quite a journey. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, like 18 years ago mm-hmm. or something. So at a high level, how have you changed as a musician from that musician I met 18 years ago?
0: Well, um, I've, I've made a lot of albums since then. I've, um, I think, matured in a lot of ways, musically, um, personally. Um, I think I've developed um, more as a songwriter and a vocalist. Uh, you know, so many of this, that's a, a, a lot of gigs. That's a lot of miles traveled on the road and uh, a lot of albums since then. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, tell me how you
1: start, first got into music.
0: It was just always in me. I can't re- remember a time where I didn't either have a like a toy guitar or a, a, my parents actually had to get me a ukulele before they got me a guitar, not because I wanted to play Hawaiian music, but because I was too I was
1: physically too small to hold an actual guitar. We're talking like age five, right? Yeah. Wow. So was there anybody who you watched and inspired you to become a guitar player or you just how was it that you, you had this love of a guitar?
0: Well, it's funny, you know... Um, I come from kind of a musical family, but I didn't see the musical side of it uh, when I was younger. I didn't really, wasn't part of that. But the first guy was Elvis Presley. I saw Elvis on TV and made me want to be a guitar player. It was funny. It didn't make me want to be a singer, necessarily, but it made me want to be a guitar player. And um, yeah, he was the first guy. And I, I just decided, yeah, I want to do that. And you took to it very, what did it come to you easily? It did, Yeah. Uh, my parents got me into some music lessons when I was young, and they were kind of funny music lessons. The guy was actually more of a saxophone teacher than a guitar teacher, so rather than teaching me chords and and guitar things, he was teach he was getting me to read music and play these melody lines that would be melody lines for an alto sax. It was quite strange actually, so I kind of you know started bashing around, and you know you'd have an uncle here or a house guest there that would show me a couple riffs like I had one uncle show me the riff for the Peter Gunn theme, you know, down on, down on, down on, down on. Well, I must have played that for six <laughs> months straight, you know, and it just, it just went for. I just, I just was really into it, you know.
1: So you, you grew up in Nanaimo. You talked about it being a beautiful place. I've been there once, and it was beautiful. It still is, I guess. Tell me about your family background. Uh, it's interesting. Where I live, um, we've
0: been on the, the family property since 1897. My great-grandfather, somehow, he was a guy that worked in coal mines, uh, taking care of mules and horses, and he somehow acquired all this property, uh, which I guess at the time was, seemed fairly remote, you know? Like, I could drive from my house to downtown, than I own, about exactly 17 minutes, but, right. um, back then you know it would have been a different situation so it's quite lovely to be up there and have that sense of history even though it's a, it's a it's a young part of of the country um, but you know the part that I live on is half of it's a christmas tree farm people come up and cut their own christmas trees this is so
1: does that belong to the gogo family yes so it's the gogo christmas farm That's christmas right.
0: tree farm okay yeah yeah my dad's got a sawmill up there and one of my sisters lives up there as well and I'm up there and um yeah, so it's it, it's a it's a real you know there's some real roots there, and it's 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 nice to have that because I travel so much on the road, and and um, when I get back, I really feel relaxed and I feel at home.
1: When you decided to become a musician, and mm-hmm. I'm going to jump all over the place, but was there ever a disadvantage that you were? situated in Naimo or did you think that at one point did you ever live elsewhere to try to establish a career? Not really I briefly
0: lived in Vancouver but that's because I was playing with some fellas in a band and they wanted to move to Vancouver and I was really reluctant and I ended up going over and then like a month later they decided to move back but i met some girls so I stayed in Vancouver for a year but I was on the road so much it didn't really matter where I lived uh, when I did my first album with EMI, they were trying to convince me to move to Toronto. I just wasn't into it. You know, I've got a real, a real, you know, like like I just love that sense of family and the sense of place of being at home. And and really, I mean, at this point, it, it really doesn't matter where you live. You can live anywhere now. Yeah, I mean, this but tech- I'm
1: thinking maybe back then. Back then,
0: technology was different. And yeah, I was definitely, they tried to trick me <laughs> to move to
1: like more of a major center, but I, I just wasn't into it. Okay, so... Growing up, you started with the ukulele, got into music. Um, I presume you got into the blues very quickly. Yeah. Um, tell me how that happened, and tell me what where that led you. Well, I mentioned Elvis, so I was in Elvis. Then I got into the, the British
0: rock bands from the 60s, you know, the Beatles and the Kinks and the Who and the Stones. From there, I started listening, you know, Discovering Cream and and Jimi Hendrix. Now, my dad had some interesting albums. He had some CCR albums and some Hank Williams. But he also had um, a Taj Mahal record, and he had some B.B. King, Canned Heat, Otis Redding. And when I was a kid, my parents would sometimes go to Vancouver to go see shows. They'd go see Tina Turner at a little club. You know, right. It was a club called The Cave, a bit before my time, or Ray Charles or B.B. B. King. So they definitely had an interest in that. And that once I started listening to Cream and Hendrix, I realized, well, that kind of reminds me of those other records, this B.B. B. King record or whatever. And... Uh, so I started trying to research, you know, just reading the liner notes on albums and looking at the songwriter credits. And this is way before any inter- interwebs or anything like that. So it was it was hard to do the research, you know. Who's McKinley Morgan- Morganfield, you know? Oh, and then you find out this guy Muddy Waters. Well, that's interesting. And But it was hard, man. It was hard to find anyone that, that knew that. And it's not like the local record stores in Nanaimo had a whole lot going on. Like, there was one <laughs> little record store in the mall that had a couple John Mayall records. And I recognized some of the same... These names that go to Rush and stuff in the songwriting credits. So, eventually, I managed to go to Vancouver and f- discover that there were some record stores that sold blues albums. And then I met a, a friend of mine, Ken Ham. He's still a good friend to this day, who is an excellent blues musician himself. But he had an amazing collection of cassettes. He, I guess, he used to have a, a really wicked collection of blues vinyl. But he was moving around so much as a uh, when he was younger that. He just uh, ended up selling his vinyl collection, but first he recorded everything on cassette. So the cassette, his cassettes were kind of like my lending library, and that's where I got to discover uh,
1: so many of the greats. And so is it through listening that you just decide that you would learn those songs, those licks? Pretty can- much.
0: I got into, you know, like my first bands, I was probably 13 or 14, and <clears throat> always playing with guys older than me, because there wasn't a lot of guys my age that were really playing. And um, <clears throat> so we do some of the 60s tunes, but then... I would suggest, hey, hey, listen, there's this, you know, other version of that song. And then by the time I was 16 or 15 or 16, that's when, you know, I, I started having my own band. And we, I'd say, well, you know, along with these Rolling Stone songs and these Who songs and these Kink songs, why don't we throw in one of these Otis Rush songs or, or you know, one of these Albert King songs? And it just kind of grew from there.
1: You had the opportunity to meet and play with some of the greats back then. Tell me about that. I was so lucky, you know. And I think about it now; it's kind
0: of crazy. I mean, I played on stage with BB B. King, Otis Rush, Albert Collins, um, Bo Diddley. You know, Johnny Winter, all sorts of people. And open shows for tons of people, like Coco Taylor and Buddy Guy, and on and on and on. So it was, it was, it was really. Nutty, and you know, like like one guy that I hung out with quite a bit, <clears throat> never really played on stage with him, but um, got to hang out and you know play guitars at Soundcheck sound check and stuff with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And when I talk to guys nowadays that were you know my age, right. like back when, you know like nineteen year old guys now, they can't believe it. You you knew Stevie Ray Vaughan, so tell yeah. me how that happened because he was a big influence on you, right? Yeah, <clears throat> he, um, yeah, you know, because there wasn't you know this when he first came out, blues was pretty. You know, it was pretty sleepy. It was a sleepy world, you know, mm-hmm. especially for a guy from Vancouver Island. And I remember when Stevie Ray Vaughn first came out and I heard about him, and I was kind of a bit of a, even at 14 or something, I was a bit of a blue snob. And I thought, well, how can this new guy be any good? And then I picked up his first album, Texas Flood, and I just was blown away. I couldn't believe how good it was. So soon after, I found out he was going to be playing in Vancouver. He was opening for Men at Work. <laughs> remember that band? <laughs> yeah, from Montreal. I uh, no, from Australia. Oh, sorry, Australia, sorry. yeah, yeah. That's you're thinking men yes, without hats.
1: No men at work is great, band. but men at
0: work, yeah. So it was an odd pairing. But I went over to Vancouver and I briefly met him. He was signing records at a Kelly's Stereo Mart on Granville Street. Briefly met him then, and then um, not long after that, he was playing in Victoria. Um, so I went down to go see him. I think couldn't stand the weather; was just about to come out. And I kind of had a little hat like his, and I was dressed up kind of like him, and. I was walking down the street, and there was a guy on a payphone who looked and he pointed at it because I had a Stevie Ray Vaughan T-shirt I bought at the Men at Work concert, and he points and he goes, "Are you going to the show tonight?" I said, "Yeah," and then he, but it, then the call came through. He's on a payphone, you know. But I, I went to the venue, and I remember I was across the street from the venue, and I saw Stevie and the band getting out of the tour bus and going into the venue for soundjack And I, you know, I, I almost killed myself trying to run across the street, jaywalking to meet him, but I missed it. You know, they, they closed the door. But then the promoter came out for a smoke break or something a little bit later and sees this kid dressed like Stevie and he's like, oh, I guess you're going to the show tonight. And I said, oh, I sure am. You know, I can't wait. And uh, he says, well, you seem like a big fan. I'll see if I can get you an autograph. I said, "Okay, cool. He went back in. Then he comes out and he says, well, I was just talking to Stevie's manager and he said he saw you walking down the street with the Stevie Ray Vaughan shirt. So here's your autograph, but also here's a backstage pass. Why don't you come meet the guys? Wow. Fantastic. So I went back there, and, the, and... It's like,
1: did you really look like Stevie Ray Vaughan at this point? Like, you're wearing the hat, and...
0: Yeah, I was, yeah, I had... And I had, did had, you want
1: to be like him? Oh, is
0: totally. It, oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I was 15. And then I go in, and I meet Stevie, and Stevie goes, so do you play? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, could you play my guitar? Because I want to hear what it sounds like out front. You know, it's this empty venue. So I got up and just, like, played that Strat, you know, that Stratocaster guitar is... Just played some blues with his band so he could go and, and hear what his amp sounded like and stuff. And then we went, uh, you know, hung out on the tour bus and after the show went back to his hotel. And so it was cool, you know, and I got to, I got to hang with him probably about a half dozen times. And the last time I saw him, I was finally getting my career together. I was mm, 19, 20. And he he kind of was poking fun at me because he he said to Tommy Shannon, the bass player he pointed at me, he goes, remember when this guy first showed up and he was dressed like me and wanted to be me? <laughs> yeah. And he said, "Well, the cool thing is," he says, "you got your own thing now, and that's really nice to see." And and uh, he he was a real he was just a fan of music, you know. He, mm-hmm. was, he was he was as much of a fanboy as I ever was. Like the last time I saw him, he was showing me some of the guitars and some of the stuff he'd been acquiring. And like this one guitar, he goes, "You know what?" He goes, "Eric Clapton gave me this guitar." And he was he was just he was just like me, like this an excited kid, you know. And so it was it was a it was a pretty special thing. And there's actually a couple of books out where they mention. The first time I met him in Victoria, although they didn't know my name, they said there was a kid that showed up dressed like him and I guess it was the first time he realized that he was on the other side of the whole rock star thing, whereas he used to try to dress like Hendrix or whoever. Right. Now there was a kid dressing like him. So
1: it was kinda kinda neat. That's cool. So tell me about the moment when you were up on stage with his guitar and playing his strat. Was it did it feel like any other strat? Or was it
0: You know, when I think about it now, it's hard to believe it even happened. I think I took it in stride at the time. I, you know, I was, just, I was just, you know, he was just so friendly and so down to earth. He just, It was just like, hey, man, you know, can, could you please play my guitar so I can hear it out front? You know? <laughs> so it, it, at the time, it didn't seem like any big deal. And now, Do you like, remember what you played? We, we just jammed some blues. Yeah. I didn't sing or anything. It wasn't really a song. It was just like, you know, let's play shuffle in the key of E or something, right. whatever it was. Yeah. So the other
1: person, I, so in that first interview I did with you, I remember asking you about Albert Collins because I wanted to work on a video piece about Albert Collins. He was another one who was kind of an influence on you, was he not? Probably the biggest influence in general,
0: just in the in the fact that he was such a great player. I never saw him do a bad show and but he was a great band leader mm-hmm. and he drove his own bus and he ran the whole show and He's the guy I think about just about daily when I'm on the road, you know. I, I, he's always inspiring to me just because he was so great, but he also, he ran the whole show. And um, and same thing, I think about it now, how ridiculously kind he was to me. I mean, silly. I mean, anytime I show up in Vancouver, he'd get me up to play. Uh, at one point, I convinced my parents to let me, you know, to fly me down to Austin, Texas, because that's where it was happening at the time, in the early 90s. And the first... First night I got there, I, I got up and jammed with some people down on 6th Avenue or 6th Street, whatever it is. But the second night, I found out, wow, Albert Collins is playing at Antones. And same thing, this was way before the internet or anything, so I had no idea. It was just this serendipitous thing. So I go down to Antones, and he's like, what are you doing here? I said, well, I just decided to come down and you know, hang out. And he goes, you're going to get, I always love when he'd say, he'd go, you're going to set in with me, son? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> sure. So the second night I'm, in, night I'm in Austin, I'm playing at Antones with Albert Collins. And it's funny because I'm doing a, sh- a show coming up soon in-, in Collingwood, and there's a guy named Haddon Sayers, and he's going to be opening for us, and I, s- I remember running into Haddon a-, a couple of years after my first record came out, and he remembered me he says, because he it was him and Ian Moore were these they snuck into Antone somehow and they- they're like, "Who's this young guy playing with Albert Collins? you know and they- 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 it was some guy from Canada, and it was me so but anyways, Albert just asked me that night, you know what are you?" doing? I said, "Well, I'm just trying to you know get my name known." and he goes, "Well, do you want to come on the road with me?" well, what's going on? He said, well, I'm doing like a week of gigs and I'm going to end up in Chicago. Wow. So I, some, I phoned my parents and they cha- managed to change the plane ticket and <laughs> I jumped on the bus with Albert Collins and we played like Kansas City and Ames, Iowa and Madison, Wisconsin and um, ended up in Chicago. I think the only show I, I didn't play with him, he'd always get me up for the encore and kind of feature me, but in Madison he was opening for Robert Cray so he didn't really have to say. But I mean, it was, it was just in- insane when I think about it now. Like well why don't you just jump on the bus and hang out? That is crazy. And play. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I presume that when people like that treat you this way, then hopefully you treat young musicians the same way. Exactly. And that's
0: kind of the legacy. And it can be difficult. Like when you're a musician, you never know what's going to happen on the road. You know, your van could break down, your amp could break down, you could get a guitar stolen or broken. You know, by the airlines, there's all these different situations. Maybe you haven't eaten forever. You're late for the gig. Just a lot of situations where your patience can be tested. Um, you can be pissed off or whatever, and it's difficult. because Sometimes people read things the wrong way, and I and I realize that you know, like 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 with someone they might be wanting to see you maybe for a month Mm -hmm. and then when they finally see you and they meet you it's only that 30 seconds interaction interaction that they remember you by right you try to be nice you try to be polite no matter what's boiling underneath the surface but um with younger players and that i always try to take the time to say hello and and ask them what they're doing and and, you know sometimes we get people to sit in it doesn't always happen it's not always a, a an ideal situation um but I've tried to do that. I've tried to do that. I've tried to remember the kindness kindness that these guys showed me and
1: uh, and pass that on. So when you first signed with e m i this was your first album. That was a big deal. was it not to sign with a major label? Yeah. How it, did that happen?
0: It was a funny thing. I was never the guy that was like sending demos out to record companies or anything. I, I was just all about playing live. I wasn't even really into songwriting that much. I just, I liked to play music, but there was a buzz going around and, 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 and luckily my dad kind of would say, well, you're doing really good in Nanaimo. Why don't you see if you can get a show in Victoria? And at first we're like, Victoria, oh, that's big time. You know? <laughs> we get down there and we were kicking ass. Oh. Well, maybe we should try Vancouver. Well, Vancouver, though, has got to be a lot of great players, which there were. But still, we went over there and kicked ass. So we just kept progressing and built up a, quite a reputation as a live act. Um,
1: can I just ask you, like, if you're kind of in the Naimo in your own little bubble and, and getting better, but how do you know that you're at a certain level? And how do you know that when you go to Vancouver that you can compete with the Vancouver musicians? Well, we didn't really. We, we didn't. Um, were there band, live bands that you saw that you took away something from, or that realized that that's yeah. the standard that we want to?
0: Well, a big a big part of it was going to Victoria, and there was a club called Harpos, and the guy, you know, we we'd given him a, a tape or wrote, wrote him a letter. I can't remember how it worked, and then he said, "Okay, I'll try you guys out. I got this new guitar player; It's supposed to be hot, so you guys might be good to open." And this guy's name; he's out of Toronto, named Jeff Healy. So I'll get you guys on to open. It was like a hundred bucks or whatever it was. But we had a really good set, and and Jeff liked what we did, and he got our sax player up at the time. And the guy went, well, you guys are good, okay. Well, I'm going to try you one more time, opening for, I forget, might have been John Mayall or somebody. And then we did really well. And he realized, okay, these guys, you know, people are starting to get a, a, a reputation here. People who are these young guys, they do a good job. So finally he said, I'm going to offer you your own night. But you got to promote it and blah, blah, blah. And we did really well. And it just went from there. So then he said, okay, I know this guy in Vancouver. Uh, He puts on blues shows, and I'm going to recommend you to him. And it just kind of grew from there. Did you know at this point that this is what you wanted to do? There was never any question about it to me. I never even thought about what I wanted to do. It was never a career choice. I mean, I, I still feel the same way right now as we're speaking as I did back then. It's just what I do. It's not a question of what are you going to do. It's this is what
1: I do. So I asked this question to most people I interviewed. did you ever doubt that decision or did you ever go through a tough time that you thought, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah, I,
0: I've, I've faced a lot of adversity in my career, um, both, uh, there's been some just really weird situations, like some really kind of bad luck and just like just some kind of perfect storms of terrible situations where I've actually had people I respect very much say to me later, wow, I can't believe you kept going. But I don't think I have a choice. I mean, I I, t- I talked to Tom Wilson uh, a while ago, and he he just said to me, he says you're like me. He says we're we're lifers. Like we have no choice.
1: This is what we do. So even when you were going through the worst of worst, yeah, it wasn't like you thought I should do something else.
0: No, I think there's once or twice where I kind of questioned, you know, because I I think I heard a quote once, and I you know it's, I'm. Uh, it's not the exact quote, but I, th- I heard that Bruce Allen once, the great manager, was asked to speak at Canadian Music Week, and he says something to the the tune of... He says, well, I'm, I'm walking around Canadian Music Week, and what I'm hearing is, I'm not hearing enough Canadian country music on Canadian country music radio. I'm not seeing enough Canadian country bands at Canadian country festivals. He goes, but I think you have to ask yourself this. Is it because you suck? <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of thought, well, maybe... Maybe I'm not as good as people have been telling me, you know, you know, because there was all these big expectations, and then not all of it happened. But instead, I kind of looked and went, "Okay, well, what can I do to improve this?" And kind of, you know, rolled up the shirt sleeves and and said, "Okay, I think I could be a better singer." I think I could be a better songwriter. I think I could be more, just more focused in general. Cause there was a few years there, you know, in the kind of the late nineties that I really, you know, was was just kind of floating. And so I decided to get real serious and then, and then, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I, I became a father. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and that was another thing was like, okay, it's not just you, buddy. You got this, this person you got to take care of. And uh, how are you going to do that? And that, so that really got me a lot more focused and um, there's still been trials and tribulations since then, but you know, you get to a point where it's, it's what you do and you, and you do your best and you try to figure out the best way to do it. And, and, and that's, especially in the last 10, 15 years, I realized, you know, trying to keep a steady band together, that's just one band I can't do. So I have a band in the West of Canada, I have a band in Ontario, then I have a band in Holland. Which I think is brilliant. Yeah, and it's not like I'm just flying in and, and playing with with, with with hired hands, right. hired guns. It's They're the same people, and they're really good players. And then I also started developing my acoustic solo act uh, based on people like my buddy Ken Ham, who I mentioned earlier, and, and, and Tim Williams and these people. That took a while longer because it wasn't really exactly my wheelhouse, but it's become something that I do almost 50% of the time now. So, that's, you know, I just you had to figure it out. You have to figure it out. Like, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How could I change things? And, and
1: um, you know, slowly figuring it out. <laughs> so, when you talked about the expectations, I presume that you grow up in a little town. You, you're you in a band. People love you. They just tell you how great you are. Mm-hmm. And you keep moving up. And you keep doing well. And people keep telling you how wonderful you are. Those Those expectations that you thought you weren't living up to, were they expectations from others or were they self-imposed expectations? Well,
0: both. You don't want to disappoint people if they think you're going to be this big deal. You kind of want to do it for them. For a while, it seemed like I was a bit of a big deal and then things kind of went crashing down a bit and it was tough and then you get some of the haters coming out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're always just a big fish in a small pond or something, you know. But I thought, well... So then I, when I question things, I go, well, if, if that was the case, why did... Albert Collins always invite me up on stage mm-hmm. why does Stevie Ray Vaughan let me hang out and drink beer in his hotel room right. you know there must have been something more to it and um, I mean it's
1: neat that you could go back to those moments yeah right Like just- absolutely
0: yeah 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 it was really important to me and you know it wasn't just the blues world like recently I, I you know I've, I've, I've ran into Tom Cochran a bit and I played on his Mad mad world record just because we were on the same label and, and and he had heard me or they'd played him something and and he wanted to help me out you know and honestly i I did a pretty horrible job on his record i I didn't play very well because i I had no experience in the studio, but you know what he was supportive and and recently you know when I do run into him you know he's he's just been very kind and he's got this great memory of that and and um, so some nice things about my playing so yeah, when there's quality musicians like that. Then you have to go, well, it can't, it can't all just be this hyperbole and, you know, like the big fish in the small pond thing. I, you know, there must be some, something valid to what I do.
1: I can't believe these people would be mean to you. Oh, it, you, know, but like I said, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Okay, so, and then the other thing was when you sign with the MI, I presume expectations are pretty high when you mm-hmm. sign with a major label. But at one point or another, mm. you decide to leave them. Right, like uh, If I remember correctly, they didn't drop you. You decided to leave the label. Is that correct?
0: It was pretty mutual. They basically did the old, if you don't start writing the songs we want you to play, you're going to find yourself without a record label. To which I was like, big deal. I was a lot happier before I had this record deal. It was very confusing to me. I felt like I was banging my head against the wall. I go, why would you sign a blues guy and then want not want to make a blues record? Right. When they said, "Well, we want to we want you to be bigger than just a blues artist," okay, so I come to them with the Archangels record that had just come out with Doyle Bramhall and Charlie Sexton, produced by Little Steven. I thought this is an interesting thing where they've taken these blues guys, and, but they've got these good songs, yeah. and neat production, great album. Yeah, and they didn't like it. They said, "No, listen to this." It's this album by this band called the Four Horsemen, which sounded like a like a poor man's ACDC, and I thought, "Where are you getting that? Why did you sign me?" <laughs> And you know, I, I, I don't want to sound cruel or anything, but I, I thought that for a while I thought I was going crazy. And then it, fa- it ends up that, um, that the, the one of the, the main fellas at the record company was actually having mental health issues. And I, had, I didn't find this out until till years later, that he, during the whole time that I was there and he was in charge, he was actually having very, very serious mental health issues, so much so he had to take a leave of absence. I didn't find this out until later, and I, I thought, well, gee whiz,
1: I wish I'd known at the time. You know, I I thought it was me. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the thing that probably a lot of people don't understand when you sign to a major label. I mean, I don't think it's always the case, but they but they treat you like a product, and they try to make you into something. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was a funny situation, you know, because, you know, there was a, uh, like I said, I I never went out of my way to to pursue getting a a record deal. But when people came around, you know, there was a lot of interest. And I just decided, well, I'm going to go with Capitol Records because the Beatles are on Capitol. (laughs) Good choice. You know, and then then, then all of a sudden it wasn't Capitol anymore. It was EMI Music Canada. And then, but the the biggest thing was they kind of took me off the road. And just, they were sending me around trying to write with these different people and do all this. It just it took the momentum away, you know. And then, strangely enough, I I fought tooth and nail to get a little bit of blues on my first record. And, and the one song um, uh, I wanted to do a cover of, it's my own fault, BB King number. And um, but it was about seven minutes long. I was surprise that we actually got it on the album but then i remember coming into toronto when the record was first released and it was like right at the prime you know their prime drive hour or whatever and q107 Q- um, they're playing the song i thought well that's weird they're playing a 7 minute blues song instead of because th- the record company had a different song they were right. trying to push as a single but it was apparently it was a bit of a hit it was in the top 10 at 10 and <laughs> the funny thing was, someone a couple of years ago, someone sent me this, um, well actually a bunch of people sent me this link to an article in Cosmopolitan magazine, where Donna Grantis, who played with Prince, mm-hmm. she said when she first started playing guitar, she told her dad she wanted to play rock and roll guitar. And apparently he said, well, if you're going to play rock and roll guitar, first got to learn the blues. So she says, if you learn one blues song, you know, back to front, I'll, give you, I'll get you a really nice guitar. And she says, so I chose It's My Own Fault by David Gogo. Wow. So... If, 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 but you know what, EMI pulled the song, they forced Q107 to pull the song. No, we want to push this single. And what are you guys doing playing this blues song? I mean, that's just unimaginable to me. You know, yeah. you're actually getting play and then they're recognizing me for who I am. It ends up being an influence on a later, like rock legend kind of, you know, girl playing with Prince. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just It drives me bananas just to think about it now, <laughs> and it just does. Okay, so when you decided that you would both go your separate ways, yeah. how difficult was that decision, and then how do you pick up the pieces? Like, is that a tough time, or are you just thinking, not a problem, we just keep moving on?
0: A little from column A, a little from column B. It, it was difficult because it was a bit of, you know, like, putting your tail between your legs, like... Supposed to be this big rock star. All of a sudden, you know, we were touring with Joe Satriani and um, playing these big festivals. And all of a sudden, I've decided to walk away. So it took a few months for me to kind of go, "Okay, what but am you I doing?" I hated it to to say this is not right. You know what? There was so much weirdness going on that it was actually a, a relief. It was a relief. There was real, really, really bizarre situations going on, both with management and record company, and just the whole thing. I mean. We'd go to a town trying to promote our new album. And the record company said, well, you're not allowed to bring your own merchandise to sell at the gigs. Why not? Well, we, we don't want to upset the retailers. This is back when there were retailers. Right. So I'd go down to the local record store. I remember one time I was in North Bay. Go to the local record store. There's a little section for David Gogo. There's nothing in there. I go, hi, do you have the new David Gogo record? Oh, uh, we did have it, but we sold it. Oh, are you getting any more? Well, no. I go, may I ask Why? Uh, well, he's not a proven seller, so you know we just buy two copies, and then I said, "Well, I've got to tell you something. I'm David GoGo, and this is my first album. So how can I be a proven seller if I've never put out an album?" Right. So in that market in 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 North Bay, they're only going to sell two records because that's all the retailer's going to carry, and but we're told we can't bring our own to the gig because they don't want to upset the retailer. Then doesn't that make you want to smack your head against the wall? <laughs> right. So and it's just situations like that, that when it, when it was
1: time to walk, it was like, okay, bye bye <clears throat> so, so when you walked, does that mean, okay, you got rid of your record committee, do you get rid of the management as well? Yeah. Uh, your booking agent? Pretty much, because once the booking agent sees that you've been
0: you know, separated from the record, then, then they don't want to really book you anymore. So
1: you're back to square one? Pretty much. And so what do you think? Like, Do you think I need a manager, or do you think I'm going to self-manage well, the first thing I thought is I gotta get back to
0: my to what I do best. So I booked a couple nights at the Queen's Hotel in Nanaimo, put together a pretty decent band, and just decided to record a couple nights. Said so maybe I'll you know, this is what I should be doing. I should be playing the blues. So we recorded a couple nights and I I don't even think I even told the band. We we were fairly we were just rehearsed enough to know, to kind of know the songs, but not re- over rehearsed. In fact, I think on the album, you can actually hear me introduce one of the songs and hear the bass player go, What key? <laughs> and I go, D, C? No, D, like dog. But I picked, out of the two nights, I picked my you know six favorite songs and the takes, slapped a cover on it, put it out independently. Somehow it got heard by a few different people. I think I'd sent copies to like Holger Peterson or people like that just to see what, get their opinion. But I thought, I'm just going to do this on my own. But then a guy heard it and he said, would you mind if I took this to the Madame Conference in uh, France? Sure. Big record company, a record conference, record industry conference. And um, a guy who owned a label out of France heard it. Dixie Frog. What is this? I love it. Got a hold of me, licensed it, put it out in Europe. We ended up selling several thousand copies.
1: Is that how you first started going to Europe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and it, it, people just really dug it over there. Uh, just, you know, got just a couple of nights recorded live in Nanaimo. Slap a cover on it. Dine, Dine Under the Stars, it's called. Because there used to be this Chinese food restaurant in <laughs> Nanaimo called The Rendezvous. And they had this separate little room. It's called Dine Under the Stars. And you go in and the ceiling was painted like you know, this, this, this beautiful starry, starry night, you know. <laughs> Real, like right out of the 50s, you know, right. 50s or 60s. And um, so that was encouraging. So I will like, say, oh, I just played a couple nights at the local bar, recorded it, put it out, and now we're touring
1: in Europe. Now, do you have a North American deal or Canadian deal at this point? Not
0: really. Uh, we got a distribution deal with what was called Page Music at the time. And then from there, all of a sudden there was interest. Um I'm trying to remember if it was Cordova Bay then or not they eventually licensed it but it, it, it got me back you know and it was an interesting story here's a guy at the major record label deal walks away from it puts out a, a live blues recording and now he's touring all over the place you know
1: did you have a sense of I mean you know you hung out with some of the greats in the blues uh, and then got a real taste of um, who they were and also at what level they were at You know, I mean, obviously, B.B. King's at a certain level. Albert Collins is at another level. Stevie Ray, whatever. But for the most part, it's tough to be a blues musician. Yeah. It's not like there are big rock stars. But did you have a sense of where you wanted to be with your career?
0: Yeah. um, Or, you know, uh, uh, reasonable expectations. I mean, when I first met Buddy Guy... Obviously, I knew the buddy guy had played with the Stones, and played with Eric Clapton, and he had done all these great things. But at that time, he was playing Harpo's, the little club in Victoria. Right. Still having to do his two sets a night. And was he even full-time at that time? or? I don't know. I just remember I was underage when I snuck in, and during the break, he was just sitting on the edge of the stage tuning his guitar or something. I bought him a drink, so he was happy to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the guy that Jimi Hendrix worships, Eric Clapton worships. He's playing his club in Victoria and having to do two sets you know it was kind of like it was a like wow. Because at that time it was t- it was just before the whole Stevie thing, you know Stevie kind of mm-hmm. got him back, Stevie Ray got him back um going um got years later, buddy Guy records a song that i co- co-wrote
1: It's crazy, which is pretty amazing
0: yeah yeah that that blew my mind, but I always thought you know what my my big thing is if I can just play a reasonable size venue and not have to worry about what day of the week it is or, you know, j- j- if I can just fill that reasonable size venue, that's that's what that's what I shoot for. And I've been doing all right. I mean, I always joke, I said, I, f- I found the secret to selling out shows that's playing the smallest, play the smallest venue possible. But, you know, if, if a guy can go from town to town and play the reasonable size venue and and know that people are going to show up and... and, and um, so what's a reasonable size venue for? Then that Then that's where you got to figure it out, <laughs> you know? It, it depends. I mean, certain markets are going to be stronger than others for you, but um, that's where the that's where the acoustic part of my show or acoustic part of my career helps out. So, say I go to Edmonton or go to Alberta, like I might book two or three band shows, play bigger venues, do well with those. But then I'll stay by myself for an extra two or three days and play some smaller places, but solo, and that kind of underrates the other
1: shows. And yeah, tell me how the approach is different between your band shows versus your solo shows? It's completely different. I think, actually, when I first met you in 2000, I think, I think you were just starting to do
0: your solo stuff. Yeah, that's about the time I was starting, yeah. I was still pretty nervous about it. Um, Yeah, because if, if, you know, some guys, when they do a solo show, it's basically just them without their band. They're playing the same songs, but just without the band. But if you look at the set list, from my solo show, and then the set list from my band show, there might be one or two songs that are the same. Otherwise, it's a completely different experience. And I enjoy doing both, because it keeps it fresh for me. If I go out and do a short tour, like maybe half dozen solo shows, that's fun, it's great, I do my thing, but then I'm ready to rock with the band again. And then after I rock with the band, I kind of go, well, it'd be nice to go out and do some solo shows again and do that thing. And with the new album that I've just recorded, it's the first time where I've kind of combined the two without being uh, too upset about that. Because usually I try to keep the two things really separate, but I realize ah,
1: people like both. Why not do both? You Because know? you've done all acoustic bands. Yeah, I've
0: done two acoustic
1: albums. Yeah, The rest are pretty much with the band. What's the thinking behind that? I mean, was it difficult to get to the point where you said, I'm going to combine the two? It was more of, what should I do next? Should I do another acoustic album, or should I do another band
0: album? And then I was doing a blues festival on the west coast of BC, and I got up one morning and I was sitting outside having a cup of tea, looking at this beautiful harbor. What, it like you woke up one morning? I woke up this morning and got myself a beer. No, I, <laughs> I woke up that morning without the blues, um, but I had my iPhone and... I was listening to the, the Beatles White Album, and I heard Mother Nature's Son, and then a couple songs later, Helter Skelter, and I went, wow, you know, what a difference. And mm-hmm. then I started really thinking about it. I thought, well, maybe I'm not giving the audience enough credit that you, know, you don't have to be just a fan of the acoustic or just a fan of the electric. You can dig both. And um, yeah, and I've been doing a lot of acoustic shows and a lot of band shows, so I kind of thought, well, maybe I shouldn't, you know, keep it so separated. And so it ended up it's 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 a nice combo with the new with the new album. And what's the new album called? The new album's called Seventeen Vultures. It's an unusual title. It's an unusual album cover. But um Is it
1: based on a song? What's,
0: what's yeah, that's the That's t- track. it's it's the title track, song it's um, it's it's a, quite a heavy song for a guy like me. quite it of song it was just lyrics that I was was up with was just lyrics that I was coming up with. Um, Well, I was on the road and, you know, as life goes on, you know, you start, you know, becoming more aware of, um, you know, losing friends and losing colleagues and losing family members. Just time flies, you know. So the the lyrics are maybe a little darker, a little more introspective. I didn't have the title, but I'd written a bunch of verses and then I was driving home on Vancouver Island and I was in my car and just something caught my eye. And I looked out the side and I live in kind of a rural area and there was this big dead snag tree and in that tree there was exactly 17 vultures <laughs> these big turkey vultures wow it was a really ominous thing so i pulled the car over and
1: that would mean that there's something dead in the vicinity exactly yeah yeah
0: and i was just looking cuz i've been writing these kind of not really morbid lyrics but reflective lyrics and dark lyrics and i went 17 vultures 17 vultures so I, I you know i wrote it down on my phone and it kind of fit with the whole vibe of the one song so
1: so is that an age thing? I think so. Yeah, I mean the morbid and the, the yeah. dark.
0: Yeah, I mean I still feel like I'm the same guy that was playing at um, Frisco's bar, and then I'm on a you know on a 16 years old, but I'm not, you know. And um, you know, especially in the last few years, so many of these musicians that were just local dudes. Like when I first started playing in bars, a lot of the, the local guys that that all they ever did was play the bars, but they were very encouraging with me and would let me sit in. And they, I think they got a kick out of this kid who was coming in at 16 years old and playing. Most of those guys are gone now. And they weren't old men,
1: you yeah. know? Yeah. It's just, it's a rough lifestyle and it's, uh, it takes its toll, so. So knowing that it's a rough style, because it is it is a rough style, and, and touring isn't easy, although I did see some pictures you just recently posted of the steaks you were eating, which made it look like life on the road wasn't that <laughs> tough. But it is a tough life. Um, How do you ensure that you take care of yourself? It's really difficult.
0: Sometimes it's tough just to get a meal in you. So when you do, that's why I try to make it the best meal (laughs) I can get. But um, the other day, we were leaving Ottawa and heading down to London, Ontario. And everyone's phones indicated it was going to take about six hours. Well, with all the construction and all this other stuff, it took like nine hours. So by the time we got there, we were you know, frantic to just get loaded in, we still had to go pick up a a drum kit, so we were almost late for the gig, which I hate doing, and we gave ourselves lots of time, but by the time we got on stage, I mean, you know, you got the flop sweat going, because you're, you know, trying to plug everything in, and the audience, I hate loading in when the audience is there, you know, and then we got new songs we're supposed to play, we didn't get a chance to try them out at the sound check, and we didn't get to eat, and at the end of the night, I realized, I haven't eaten all day. I've been driving, doing this game. I might die if I don't eat, you know? And and, and of course, you, what are your choices that time of night right. in a smaller town? Yeah. You know, pizza delivery or some kind of thing, you know? And, and it's like, you know, and you're like, well, I can't be eating gut kind of junk, you know? So it, it, it can be difficult, you know?
1: So, how do you ensure that you take care of yourself then? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talked about going to Europe. You still go to Europe a couple Yeah, times I'll be a year? going there in two weeks. And this is because of your association with Dixie Frog many years back? Uh, no, the, the guy
0: from Dixie Frog has retired, but I heard he's come back, so maybe I should hit him up see if he wants to put the new record out. Um, no, this, I've, I've always had a bit of a following in Holland, and I had an offer to do a festival and another club show, and it's it's a quick little trip. I'd like to be over there for longer, especially with the new record, but they do things over there, I mean... Everything in the music business has changed. Like in the old days, if I was going to be looking to book some summer festivals in Canada, I'd start b- booking in January for the upcoming summer. Right. Now you got to start the summer before. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's even crazier. Like everything's at least a year in advance. So I, I played there a year ago and they said, Can you come back in a year? And right away I went, Yeah. I had no idea like if I'd have a new album out or what was going on. I'm just like, I'll just say yes. Um, and it sounds kind of crazy just to go, you know, go, go that far for just a couple of shows. But, you know, I know guys, you know, Canadian musicians are crazy. I know guys that will drive from Vancouver to Edmonton to play one festival and drive back. So to jump on an airplane and go to Holland for a couple
1: of shows, it's the same thing. Okay, so we talked about the fact that you have three bands. Mm-hmm. So you would rehearse with the band in Holland. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so next time you tour Europe, that they would know the material and whatever, right? Yeah. How did you come up with that idea? I mean, I don't know how many people do, and I know some people do. But, yeah, some people do. But um, not a lot. And it just seems to make a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, and some people just just will hire guys at the last minute. I've been lucky that I've had people that are pretty loyal to me. Like like the guys that I work with out of Ottawa have been
1: with me for a good 15 years now, I think. And, and the, do they have? like? Do, it's probably impossible, but is it possible that the West Coast band, the East Coast band, and the European band all have the David Go-Go sound to a certain degree, and that if I close my eyes, that it would be somewhat close.
0: Yeah, the only difference being, I think the Ottawa band is the only one that has a steady keyboard player right now. Otherwise, I've been doing a lot of trio work back home and, and in Europe. Depends sometimes. I think for these European days, we might have a keyboard player again. Um, but yeah, because I've, I've got these, you know, they're fairly loyal. It's, it's, it's pretty darn similar sound. You know, if I was just flying in and, you know, if I just like said, okay, go to Spotify, check out the tunes, I'll meet you guys at the gig, then it might be different and, and I won't be as relaxed, but, uh, it's worked out pretty good so far. It was difficult to get it going at first. At first it was, it was tough to find the right players and, and offer the incentive enough that they were even interested in doing it. Right. But if you're
1: doing it a couple times a year, like do you come out east? A
0: couple yeah. Times a year. Yeah. So as long as you know, and, and like I said, things are much more planned in advance now. So if I just say, hey guys, I'm going to come back in six months, are you
1: available to these five shows? Sure. Okay. So you have territories that you do well at, um, and I presume of, of various degrees. But you, there are parts in Europe that mm-hmm. you can play and people show up. You parts in East Coast and West Coast that you have a following. So what's your status like in the states well are there areas that you need to get to
0: yeah i'd love to play more in america i haven't played in america in a very long time anytime i have played there i've done really well we've played some festivals where we just went over gangbusters and people were just saying how come we've never heard of you i said i don't know i've been doing this my (laughs) whole life but it's 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 been difficult for me to get down there and 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 get any traction and you know there's so much competition down there and then you got to jump through all these hoops if you want to do it um um legitimately, if you want to you know, right. get the proper work visas and permits and all that kind of stuff, it can be um, difficult. It's it's They make you jump through a lot of hoops. It's expensive, and especially if they don't know who you are,
1: they don't want to pay you much, then you're kind of going, well, I don't want to be losing money just to go and play. Right. I don't I don't know if people would know, but going to the States would require what's called a P2 form, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to kind of apply at least six months in advance. Oh,
0: it's, it's, it's ridiculous because there's no business in the world um you know it's, it's difficult in any business to plan that much in advance little right. in the music business i mean music <laughs> business is just silly right? but
1: if you don't plan ahead then they charge yeah. you more to get yeah there. and they're
0: extremely rigid about you know every every i has to be dotted every t has to be crossed but magically if you throw more cash at them they can expedite it right so it's just absolute highway robbery yeah but I'd love to get down there more because there's lots of interest. You know, I have people on my Facebook page and my social media. Man, you got to come down and play it. You know, this certain town in the states or that certain town because you know I do get a, a little bit of airplay on on BB King's Bluesville on Sirius and things like that, and and then just through social media, people start sharing. Right. And it's funny, you never know what's going to happen. Like I have a recording I did to that James Brown number. It's um, It's a Man's World. <clears throat> that record's probably almost 20 years ago that I recorded it on. And all of a sudden, in the last six months, it's catching on fire. We've got a million plus YouTube plays, wow. 600,000 Spotify plays on this one song. Do you it know came why? out 20 I don't know why. All of a sudden, but people start sharing. And, you know, it could be some guy that's part of a Joe Bonamassa fan page or something. said, you got to check. The, if you like Joe, you'll like this, you know? And it's little things like that. You don't really know where they come from. And all of a sudden, it's a phenomenon.
1: So here's another memory for me, and I don't know if you remember this, but one year when I had my TV show, um, I wanted to do a music video with you. And mm. I think, I don't know if I picked Skeleton Key or you had played it, but basically the idea was that I shot some footage of you playing at okay. Jeff Healy's Club. Right. And I don't know how many shot, songs we shot, but you, Skeleton Key was the song that you I shot, and I had one or two cameras, and the idea was that I would match the music, match your playing to the album, or the album recording of Skeleton Key. And the thing that amazed me was that when you played it live, the pacing was almost exactly the same as the live Mm. album, which doesn't, you know, you think, okay, that's that's normal. Well, it's not normal. I mean, I've worked with a lot of classical musicians, and I've worked with a lot of great blues musicians, and and timing is always different. Right. (laughs) From one take to another. And to to be able to almost match your playing live to a re- studio right, recording just really impressed me. Oh, like I okay. just thought, holy shit, this guy's good. <laughs> um, and, and even the solo was really close. So um, I should bring out that video one day. But that's, I mean, I, I had a, a whole new respect for you once I saw that. Tell me about that discipline that you have about playing. Well, yeah,
0: I mean... You want to be comfortable. And that's the other thing about playing with different bands is, is locking in with them for certain tempos. And it's funny because at one point I remember there was a drummer I was working with out west. He used to play... He just generally played behind the beat a lot. And the guy I was working with in the east tended to play in front of the beat. Right. And one time I made the mistake... So I'd always count the song in a little bit too fast when I was out west just to get that guy... Right, locked in, and then I count everything in a little bit slower back east. And I mean, then one time I screwed up; I counted up? it in too fast for the fast guy, <laughs> I think it was, or too slow for the slow guy. And oh god! And all of a sudden it was—it just wasn't there. You know, we weren't locked in.
1: But like, do you have this meter in your head? that If you play Skeleton Key or any other tunes that you yeah. have, like you know basically, yeah, where it should be all the time. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And and I, so I've got. I even have little signals that I have for, for guys. Like if I have, say I haven't been out in 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 um Ontario for six months and I haven't played with that drummer, he, there might be the odd song. He's he's pretty damn good because he's he's usually got a little earpiece that gives him the little click track. But if if I do feel it's too fast, I there's a little little movements I do with my body as I'm playing that indicate either slow it down a bit or bring it up a bit. Right. And you just kinda have to make sure they know what those are. <laughs> they might just think you have gas.
1: <laughs> well well hopefully you do communicate this. Yeah. Because I, I think Keith Richards does that too—to have signal some of this Absolutely, um, tell me about your Christmas tree farm. Is it like? Is it part of your family's? Or is it yours? Oh, it's almost a family
0: deal. Yeah. So we, you know, we all live up there, and um, everyone helps. Um, my son's been working. My son's nineteen years old now, so him and his girlfriend have been working all summer
1: uh, doing the pruning. Okay. And so tell me about Christmas trees in general. Like, how many are? on that farm and and do you like plant them in the yeah and then is it within a one year period that they grow to the no, it takes about seven years so do you have seven different areas that every year you sell a certain bunch it's
0: not really like a like a like a like um like a a, a greenhouse or anything like that you know we try to mix it up because you don't want to have it look too farmy you know you want it to look more natural uh, but it takes about seven years, um, but it can be difficult because then you always have to be thinking seven years ahead. And then what if there's a drought one year or or whatever, you know, you never know. But it, it's it's a real family thing. You know, like we've had this property for so long and my dad was trying to figure out the best, you know, what can we do with this land, you know. And so it became an interesting thing because when, you know, traditionally our families always used to, you know, cut trees off the property, bring them into town and sell them at the gas station or a vacant lot or whatever. And then my dad started reading about um, these U-cut lots down in Washington State and Oregon. And it's a really cool thing because we're, 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 it seems like we're far away from town, but we're not. We're 15 minutes out of town, but people can come up and it's extremely rural. Like, and it doesn't take long for them to get there. They show up. We hand them a saw. They can pick any tree they want. They can take 15 minutes. They can take three hours. We don't care. Go pick your tree. You right. come out, give me my saw back, give me some cash and um is it it a flat rate for the tree yeah not size or anything no it's too difficult to do that you know it's too high high of a volume a turnover when when the people are coming up that we don't we have one we have a a, a one lot in town that they do it by size but otherwise it's just a flat rate but people love it it's become a real family tradition over the last 25 years i guess now that we've been doing that and you know they, they some people bring the whole fam damily up the grandma and you know the grandkids and everything and they got a thermos and they go out and they walk around and pick just that perfect tree and it's great so it it's, it gives um you know obviously you can make some cash but also it's a it gives um it's a way to use the property and it's become a real uh real community tradition it's nice
1: and is it like a a serious business or is it just like I mean, do you sit there and is. go, "We got to sell this many trees this year"? Well,
0: or? you know, it's funny because my dad has a sawmill on the property too, and that's the primary kind of earner for up there. And whereas the Christmas tree started is more of a sideline, but now the Christmas tree thing's taking over more. And my dad's getting ready to retire. The sawmill thing is really difficult. I don't, you know, I think once he retires, that'll probably be gone. So the Christmas tree thing will be much more of a serious thing. But we've also learned how to run it a lot better over the last 20 years. And, um, and it's just built up momentum. People really, really, really like it, you know. So you also recorded a
1: Christmas album. I did. This, do, you, do you throw that in? I, well? well,
0: I try to, I don't throw it in, but I try to encourage them. By the way, since you're here for Christmas, why don't you buy my Christmas album?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and are these mainly people from Nanaimo, that area?
0: I presume. Yeah, pretty, pretty much the majority. So
1: repeat customers.
0: Oh yeah, we get some people come up and they're all excited. It's our twentieth year coming up here to get our tree, and so it's it's nice. It's really nice to be recognized in the community like that. Yeah. What
1: was the name Gogo come from?
0: We're not really sure. Um uh, we we think it might be um um like Belarus or somewhere around there and it oh. might have had like been G O G O L or G O G O L J or something, Gogol or Gogol. but as far back as we can trace in our family it's always just been G O G L Gogo, yeah. And it's funny because it seems odd everywhere else. People just assume it's a stage name. You know, you're, yeah, yeah, you're I always a that. hot shot guitar player David Gogo. Uh, in fact I remember one time. I think it was Canadian Music Week and I was doing a panel guitarist thing and it was Tony D, Johnny A, and me and someone said, So David Gogo, what's your real last name? And I said, Why don't you ask Tony D and Johnny A? <laughs> but it's one of these things where it just seems like it's made up. But in the community in Nanaimo, it's just one of those family names that people just take as every day. My, my my auntie Dodie who's passed away now, she played organ at the at the church for 63 years you know and last name gogo my dad's got the sawmill gogo's sawmill gogo's tree farm um you know my cousin paul plays in trooper he just calls himself gogo you know it's it's funny um in the in within the the town it doesn't seem unusual then you get outside and
1: people just assume it's made up can we just talk about your relationship with cordova bay because it's been a long relationship Mm And you said, "You thought maybe fourteen albums yeah. or something that they've done." Tell me how that began.
0: Well, it was a funny thing. Um, when I first started playing, doing my acoustic act, I was actually I, initially I worked with a, 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 an acoustic bass player guy named John Forrest, who's now passed away. Um, because I didn't quite have the confidence to do it on my own, I thought I better have one other person. And I thought, well, let's let's record a demo tape and try to get some festival gigs. So I, I took him into a studio, and we were going to Vancouver to record with my friend Colin Nairn, who uh, plays with Barney Bentall. And he's, they had a little demo studio, and I said, You know, I just want to make this tape or a recording and send out, try to get some gigs. And on the way over, the bass player said, Hey, listen. Um, it might be cool to you know, just have this be an album that we could sell at the gigs. And I said, Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, actually, you know, serve double purpose. It can be a demo plus, it can be something to sell at the gigs. And then he goes, Yeah, yeah. But hey, listen, maybe this should just be a David Gogo record. Maybe you could just give me a thousand dollars to play on. <laughs> so he's hustling me on the way over, right? But then I thought about that, well, actually that's not a bad deal, right? Twenty years later I'm still selling that record and he's gone. But uh, <laughs> but um um that record, I think I'd, I think sent it to Doug Cox to maybe try to get a gig. And then Doug said, hey, you know, Dave, there's this guy in uh, Victoria who's got this label. But it was a, it was a label called Ragged Pup. But Ragged Pup was just about to amalgamate with Cordova Bay. I sent the, the acoustic record and they said, okay, we want to put out this acoustic record. But Cordova Bay guy, ends up being Michael Burke, wants to know when you're going to come up with another electric record. Because he'd like to do that. So um, I met up with this guy from Ragged Pop. He introduced me to Michael Burke. Michael Burke says, you know, I said, well, actually, I was just doing a a new electric record that was actually produced by Barney Bentall. And would you be interested in in licensing that and putting it out? And they were. Uh, We just, we we got along. I've been very lucky. Michael has been very, very supportive of me. Uh, He's believed in my talent, him and his wife. Um, It's an unusual situation. I think in any business to have a, a relationship this long, especially these days in the music business, it's mm-hmm. just so, so tough, you know. Um, but we're really realistic with each other. Um, you know, we, we we've seen in the last few years, you know, just how hard it is to sell albums. So we have to be realistic about things like
1: budget. Um, Does that change the way you approach things drastically? Yes. Meaning that you wouldn't go into a bigger studio or spend as much money, or is it exactly. more than that? Exactly. Yeah, no, because a year or so
0: ago, I went down to Nashville just to kind of sniff around and, and see what was going on, and had a couple of meetings with some people. Had a really interesting meeting with one, one guy who was a producer, and when, when I looked at him, he was, Michael Burke had suggested I I'd get together with him. Michael knew him from the old days, and uh, without getting into names, because I still might want to work with him, but I, we had a quick meeting, and he had a, some really great ideas about something that I could do down there in that area. Really cool. I would have loved to have done it, but we crunched the numbers and it's like, you know, once you start involving hotel rooms, flights, U S currency, all these different things. It was like, I don't know if we can make it back. Mm -hmm. And at this point it's
1: like, we just want to be able to pay for the album that we just made. So we can make the next one. And the album is a calling card for festival. So how do you, what does the album mean to you?
0: It's more than that. Um, i try to just keep being i always want to bring something new to the table i always want to you know when i play a a venue if i'm going to come back there a year later a year and a half later i don't want to be doing the same show i want to have some new stuff i always want to be moving forward as an artist yeah it helps to get booked into a festival it helps getting your name back in the media right if you've got a new product but um to me it's still uh, you know it's it's my growth as an artist and you know I like to I like to keep things current, you know. I I don't like to use the same photo from ten years ago when it comes time for the poster. I don't like to have the same album, you know. I want to I want to keep growing. Fourteen,
1: fifteen albums in, which is a lot of albums. Yeah, is it hard to come up with the next idea? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you'd say, Oh no, I always got ideas. Like, do you struggle with? Okay, what's the next album gonna be and
0: yeah, well, a couple of records ago, uh, come on down. I, I I was looking for inspiration, so I went down and did the uh, the blues trail. You know, started in Memphis, went through Mississippi. That god. was really cool. I mean, I was just oh my god, it was it was just so awesome. to finally, I'd been down there before, but I was always too busy. And this was the first time. It was like a quest, and to go to the towns Robert Johnson would sing about, to go to Friars Point. Um, to go, I, you know, I went down to Rosedale with my rider by my side and there was just a a funny situation down there too. Just some really good timing and some really good, you know, it was great. It was absolute inspiration. Uh, the next record Vicksburg call was more just inspired by things in my life. You know, I'd gone through a, uh, relationship breakdown and it was a relationship that I was kind of, I thought was going to be lasting for a little longer than it did. Um, you know, and, and just things like my son getting older and, you know, me getting older. So I didn't really have to travel. That mm. was just more
1: life experience and, um, and becoming a better songwriter, too, I think. And how does that happen? Is that just putting in your hours? Because, I mean, you talked about in the beginning, you didn't write songs. Yeah. And then, and then when you decide to focus, you want to become a good, better songwriter. Yeah. How does one become a better songwriter?
0: Doing a lot of listening you know looking at the the artists whose songs you like and trying to figure out okay what are they doing here that i'm not doing and just yeah just just um yeah putting in the hours and and, and, and the experience and living life you know writing about what you know and um, you know and sometimes it would be something like as simple as a guitar i i bought a martin d35 a few years back and that guitar every time i pick it up it wants to write a song with me
1: and it just happens.
0: Yeah. Wow. I start playing different on that guitar than I do on
1: most guitars. It's funny. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I'm not being a guitar player. I can't really relate to that whole concept. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it. I'm glad it inspires me because I might have been hooped without it. I don't know. But more so than any other guitar. Yeah.
0: Well, for certain styles. Right. Some sometimes there's a different guitar tuning. Like I'll play it in an open G tuning for more of like a Keith Richards kind of sound. Other times I'll just fart around on a piano or something that I don't really know how to play, but you know it's like I, I'm, I don't know I'm doing. So all of a sudden you discover new things, <clears throat> but there's something about that Martin that gets me
1: writing, more, more songwritery songs than than just blues, you know. You know, one of the other things that you do is you've you've tended to cover people who mm. might surprise some blues music, yeah, music, listeners like the Best Mode, and where does that come from? And does that do you ever think twice or are you ever concerned about covering certain songs or doing certain things and how that might affect just the fan base? Or do you never go there?
0: Well, I kind of just listen to music and I can hear blues in things that sometimes you wouldn't hear blues in. Like the Depeche Mode tune, I mean, that's still popular. People really like that song, but I heard it as a, as a blues song. And <clears throat> when I first covered it, um, the people I was working with at the time, they were like, "Really, you're gonna record you know you're gonna record a Depeche mo tune? You're a blues guy." But as soon as we did it, we actually had a bit of a radio hit across Canada. And then Johnny Cash recorded it. And yeah. then a, a bunch of people have covered it since I covered it. Right. So, like I always joke, I'm a trailblazer when it comes to covering other people's songs. <laughs> but another thing was we, we on the Soul Bender record I did, um, we covered a Michael Jackson tune, "The Way You Make Me Feel." But if you listen beyond the 80s production, it's a blues shuffle. Bang, 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 bang. Pretty Mama with the red dress on. You know, mm-hmm. it's a shuffle. Right. And I listen to Well, Michael Jackson was this black dude from Indiana. or Where was he from? Yeah. Indiana, that, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, he heard, the, he heard the blues. That's in him. You can hear all that production uh, that is of a time with the synthesizers and all the stuff. you know. But it's a blues song. And so that's kind of where, where I get it, you know. And on the new record, we actually cover a Doug and the Slugs song. <laughs> really? Yeah, a song called Tomcat Prowl. I and, love that song. That's yeah. Great. Wow, that's a great song. And you know what? Same thing. You get past the production because we, it, we actually have Simon Kendall, who's, who was the, guitar, or the uh, keyboard player in Doug and the Slugs, plays organ on it. Wow. And he was howling. He says He says, oh, you heard it. <laughs> you know, you heard the blues. <laughs> Because, you know, they had to produce it a certain way to get the airplay that they did at the time. There's like these synthesizers, these gated snare drums. But the soul of that song, it's a greasy, dirty blues song.
1: I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. It's, it's actually pretty cool. We've wow. been playing it live and it's been going over really well. I should wrap up. I want to thank you for doing this. My last question to you is that, that young kid who knew from the very beginning that this is what you were going to do. How do you summarize the journey you've taken? As the
0: kids would say, it's been totes cray cray. It's I. That's what they say. That's what they. apparently that's what they say. You know, sometimes it's it's weird because there's a lot of the time I just feel like I'm the same guy that I was at 16, throwing my Fender Vibrolux amp and my Strat in the the trunk of my Mustang and going to a gig and go play at the Legion Hall or something. Other times I I look at it and, and I'll go. Dude, you're flying to Holland for the weekend. Um, then you got to come back and 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 you know like organize this concert with so and so. Like sometimes it, it, I'm, I'm flabbergasted at the absurdity of it all, and other times I just take it in stride. But it's just it's just it's what I do.
1: <laughs> and it's been a good journey. Yeah, yeah, and it still you know continues to be so. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're on this tour and you got a busy press day and you're taking time really I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you talking to me. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you.